Have you ever thought you were one thing only to find out you were something else? This happened to me several years ago. There was a family at the Fort Gibson Church that I really loved. My love for the parents overflowed to the kids. Since I loved with the kids, I made a point to interact with them, especially the two sons, pretty much every time that I saw them. But the way that I interacted with them was the way that Rosses tend to interact with one another. Rosses are a pretty aggressive bunch, and acts of aggression are generally the way we show our love and affection for one another. For instance, at Thanksgiving, I went in to my aunt's house to the kitchen and said hello to my 50-something cousin who stopped what he was doing, turned, and slugged me in the arm hard. But it wasn't catch me off guard because I can't remember a time when the first thing he did when he saw me wasn't slug me in the arm. I guess you could say that Ross's slug more than we hug. Anyway, I brought this sort of aggressive bonding to the two sons of the family. The younger one loved it. He thought it was the greatest thing ever. It was right up his alley. The older one, not so much. But I thought he did like it because his brother did and he didn't seem to mind it. And then one day that he told me that he thought I was being mean. And I was crushed by this. I mean, you couldn't have paid me to be mean to one of these kids, but that's how he interpreted my actions. I thought I was one thing, but I was really something else. I think something similar can happen to us in our spiritual lives. It is possible for us to think that we're saved when we're not. It's possible for us to think that we are spiritually mature when we're not. And this is a problem. Because there's very little that's worse than being deceived about our spiritual lives. The passage we're going to look at today will will help us examine our lives in light of Scripture to see who we really are. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It's page 871 in the Pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. First Corinthians two and 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For it is known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? The title of the message this morning is, Who Am I? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for an opportunity to gather, study your word, to sing your praise. We ask, God, that you would help us to be focused upon you in this time. Lord, that our hearts and our minds be open to you, that we could hear you speak through your word. Father, we know that your word is living and active and that, God, it will not return void. You have a purpose for this passage, for this people today. And we ask, God, that we would... Be open to receive it. Be challenged, Lord, where we need it. To be strengthened where we need it. To be encouraged and convicted where we need it, God. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech to speak your words and your ways for your glory. Father, we ask all of this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as you read this passage that we're looking at, you notice that Paul makes a distinction between three types of people, I guess you'd say. There are... Those who are the natural man, the spiritual man, and the carnal Christian. 
And what these three are is is basically the stages, the spiritual stages that, that we can be in our lives. Those who are not yet saved are are natural. They do not have the spirit of God living within them. Those who are Christians and have the spirit living within them, they are spiritual people. And then, unfortunately, it is possible for Christians to to sort of revert back to the way they lived before they were saved. And then they become carnal Christians. The reality is every one of us in this room today falls into one of these three categories. Right. And, and that's the main the central truth I want you to understand that right now I am a natural, a spiritual or a carnal person. That, that's for all of us. And as I thought about that, I thought, man, that sounds harsh to put it in that those blunt of terms. But I don't know any other way to say it. The reality is we are all one of these or another. And the key for us is to figure out which one we are. So we're going to look at the three stages and ask ourselves the questions. One, am I a natural person? Right, in verse 14, the, the natural man is basically someone who has not been saved. They are physically alive and yet they are still spiritually dead. The Spirit of God has not made them alive and does not indwell them. And what Paul gives us in this verse is, is a, a picture of how it impacts the way that the natural man views the world. Right? For instance, a natural person rejects the things of God. But he says the very first of verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. The idea of receive is that they don't, they don't accept them. They don't embrace them. They, they reject them. And the idea behind the of rejecting the things of the Spirit is that a natural person who does not have the Spirit of God living within them, they, they live in, in this world. And they focus their lives on what they can see, what they can taste, what they can touch, what they can feel, what they enjoy. The focus of their lives is about what is in it for them now. They focus on bigger and better toys. They focus on possessions. They focus on gaining wealth. They focus on getting promotions. Right? Their, their treasure, I guess you could say, is here and now. And any talk that focusing on wealth and possessions, on promotion and things, is a wasted life. And that there is more than what we can see and touch and smell. Well, that's not something that's for them. They're glad it's good for you. But they have no, it has no place in their lives. They, they, they summarily reject it out of hand. The natural person also considers the things of God to be foolish. Which makes sense. If, if my life is focused on the here and the now, if my life is focused on what I can see and what I can touch, what I can taste and what I can smell, then the things of God would be foolish. But because the things of God, the, the promises, say, we have in Christianity, how many of those can we touch? How many of those can we see? How many of those can we taste? Well, None. I mean, this is why unbelievers today pour so much scorn on Christianity. We believe that God became a man. But we haven't seen that. We've never seen God become a man. 
We believe that this God-man lived a perfect life, that he never sinned and never did anything wrong. But we've never seen anyone live like that. We believe that this God-man died on the cross. But we've seen people die, but his death wasn't just a physical death. He, he took the penalty for our sins. We've never seen that. But he didn't stay dead. He, he rose from the dead. Never to die, ascended into heaven, and now offers salvation to all who would believe in him and who would call upon him. Well, you can't see or taste or touch any of those things. We, we live a certain way because there's a promise of, of heaven and a hope beyond this life, but no one has seen heaven. No one outside of the Bible can give us an accurate description of what it's like. And so these things are not discernible in, in the physical realm. And so the natural person dismisses them as, as foolishness. It's just a, it's a myth. If you want to believe it, that's fine, but it's crazy talk for me. And then the natural person cannot comprehend the things of God. The last of it, he says, neither can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. And it doesn't mean they can't understand. I mean, they, they can understand the, the words and the phrases of Scripture, the ideas and the concepts of salvation and atonement, death, and all of that kind of stuff. But, but see it in a way that it makes sense. To see it in a way that it would be valuable to them is not something that they can grasp. The natural man understands maybe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But the natural man can't comprehend how that would be significant to us. The natural man understands the desire to believe that there is something beyond this life. A, a heaven for good people, a hell for bad people. But the natural man can't comprehend how you would live a certain way because you believe that. The natural man just can't wrap their mind around the way Christians are supposed to live. Things like self-denial, generosity, purity, uh, turning the other cheek. These things don't make a lot of sense if you take God out of the equation. And so they can't comprehend how you or I or anyone could really make something like that the focus of your life. Sure, be a little spiritual, but don't let it drive be the driving force of your life. They can't comprehend how anyone could do that. So the question is, could you be a, a natural person today? Do these describe your life, your attitudes? The second question we need to ask, am I a spiritual person? Where the natural person is spiritually dead but physically alive, the spiritual person is both Physically alive and spiritually alive. They have turned from their sins. They have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. The Spirit of God has come within them. And they are now alive. And just as there is a, there are characteristics for the, the natural person, there are characteristics of the spiritual person. One is, spiritual people understand spiritual things. Uh, but he who is spiritual Judges all things. And the idea of judges all things is that he discerns them, right? The word that's used as judge there is the same word used as discern in verse 14. And the idea is that the spiritual person can understand spiritual things. 
Right? The, the, the spiritual person understands why Jesus' death on the cross is significant and important. The spiritual person understands that heaven is real and why we live a certain way for the hope that we have then. Particularly, the spiritual person understands Scripture and why that is significant. See, the natural person really doesn't see the significance of Scripture. Again, they might understand it. The words and the phrases, that's just simple reading comprehension. And they might appreciate the literary quality of it or the impact it's had upon human history. But as far as seeing it as something that would shape the way that we live, again, it goes back to they see it as as foolish. But the spiritual person recognizes that the Bible is more than a book. The Bible is the living word of the living God that can be used by God to, to shape our thinking, our attitudes, our actions, and our character. The spiritual person comes to the Word hoping to hear from God so that God can correct them and strengthen them and encourage them and help them. The spiritual person understands the significance of spiritual things. The spiritual people also are not understood by natural people. He goes on and he says, that yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Now, I don't know that I had ever really understood fully what this meant until I was studying for this message. But again, the judged is discerned. And the idea is that when spiritual people understand spiritual things and they shape their life based upon what they understand in the spiritual realm, it doesn't make sense to the natural person. Again, if you think about it, a lot of what we do It doesn't make sense if you take God out of the equation. Turning the other cheek, that's not a natural response for most people. Being forgiving is not a natural response for most people. Self-denial, taking up our cross, following Jesus. These are not natural responses for most people. And so if you take God out of the equation, it's silliness to kind of live in these ways. And so as a a spiritual person lives out the commands of Christ and lives out the life of Christ in, in the world in front of unbelievers, the natural person sees that and says, that is the dumbest way to live I can imagine. Why on earth would you act like that? Why would you prioritize your life around an ancient book that has no relevance for our lives today? Why would you... Do this, it doesn't make any sense. Your life doesn't make sense to me. Years ago, I heard a, an audio book called Crazy Love by a guy named Francis Chan. And he was talking about this concept. And he was talking about Noah building the ark. And he said, you know, you think about it. Noah building the ark would not have made much sense to the people of his world. From what we might understand, there there had not rained. There were no boats. So here Noah is building a boat on land where all of the animals are going to come to save his family from a flood that no one had ever understood before. How much sense did that make to the people of Noah's day? And then he said something that has bothered me and stuck with me ever since. He said, something is wrong when our lives make sense. To unbelievers. I mean, you think about that. If we are living the Jesus way of life, prioritizing our lives with our actions, our reactions, our priorities, all of that like the way Jesus said, then the unbelieving world 
should not be able to understand. They should go, why would you do that? Why do you act like that? Why do you do this? So do, does the way that we live our lives, do unbelievers look at our, our attitudes and our actions and our priorities and our reactions, and they go, that makes perfect sense. Or do they look and say, I just can't understand why anyone would want to live the way that you're living. The spiritual person, their lives are not understood by natural people. And then a final truth about spiritual people is that spiritual people have the mind of Christ. He says in verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And the idea of having the mind of Christ isn't that we understand all things perfectly. Right? We don't. Having the mind of Christ doesn't mean that we can explain all of the, the bowls of judgment and things of revelation. It doesn't mean that we have a perfect understanding of Scripture and all of that. But it does mean that we understand how we're supposed to live. It does mean that we understand the way that Jesus thought and the way that Jesus lived. And, and since we think the way Jesus thinks, we are able to live the way Jesus lived. We understand the importance of it and we strive for that. We, we want to think like Jesus thought and see the world in the way that Jesus saw it so that we can then do the things that Jesus did in the world. But what does it look like to have the mind of Christ? And what would that be lived out in in our lives? So I thought about that. I think there's one passage that best of all illustrates the mind of Christ and how that would be lived out. And turn to Philippians chapter 2. Think that maybe page 900 in your pew Bibles. It's page 1349 in my Bible, if that's any help. Now, Philippians 2 and verse 5. Here's what it says. Let the mind of Christ, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, have the mind of Christ. Think like Jesus thought. So that you can then live like Jesus lived. That's what Paul is saying in Philippians 2. And then verses 6 through 11, he tells us what it looks like when we live and have the mind of Christ. The first thing is, it says in verse 6, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Right? And you think about it, Jesus was God in the flesh. He had all the rights of God. He could have demanded that people worship him and bow down before him. But that isn't the way that Jesus lived. And that's not the things that Jesus did. Instead, what Jesus did was Jesus gave up his rights. Jesus lived on the earth as a guy, as a carpenter, as as a teacher. And he gave up his rights to be worshipped at that time. He gave up his rights to be I mean, he could have demanded, he could have forced people to bow before him. But he didn't. See, Jesus saw that there were bigger things that needed to be done. And so he he gave up his rights. So I wonder, if we think like Jesus thinks, we're willingly give up our rights in this world. Now, that's not a natural way to think, is it? We... We think a lot about our rights. It's my right to act a certain way. It's my right to do a certain thing. It's my right to be this and to say that and to do this. Yet if we have the mind of Christ, we we give up those rights. But not only do we give up our rights, but we we become servants of others. 
but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. You think about the idea of being a servant. Jesus served others. I mean, he, again, he's, he's God. And he has all rights, but he, he chooses instead to put the needs of others over his own rights. And he served them. And his servanthood was shown in a lot of ways. One of the important ways is in washing the disciples' feet. Washing the disciples' feet was a, a servant's act. It was the lowest servant's act. I mean, you think about... They, I've always thought about this. They wore like sandals and walked on dirty streets. We have feet washing services here as Free Will Baptist. But I don't know how anyone else is. But before I come, I wash and powder my feet so that they're not funky before we get here. But there was no doing that then. I mean, the animals used the bathrooms where they walked. And all of that was a part of what was on their feet. And the God of heaven, the, the God of glory, who had human flesh, washed those dirty, nasty feet. As a servant. The greatest way he showed his servanthood was by the death on the cross. He willingly gave up his rights and and he put our need for salvation above his desire not to be crucified. And he went to the cross. That's what a servant does is put the needs of others over their own wants and their own wishes. In verse 8 it says, Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You think about self-denial there. Willingly died, suffered, so that others could be saved. That, that is, the, the, when we have the mind of Christ, our comfort isn't the highest priority of our lives. In order to help others, we know that it will require difficulty on our part. And we willingly do that so that they can be helped. And then, In verse 9 through 11, it says that God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those under the earth and those those on the earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus didn't demand that they honor him. Jesus didn't demand that they bow before him. But the day is coming where God will ensure that all of that happens. And what this means for us. If we have the mind of Christ, we will trust God to give us whatever honor we deserve. Those who have the mind of Christ don't need to exalt themselves. They don't need to make sure people see what they do. They don't need to ensure that others acknowledge and honor and praise them. They, they leave that in God's hands. And if God sees that they deserve to be praised and honored, then God will ensure that they get it. Those who have the mind of Christ are content to serve behind the scenes where no one ever sees and no one ever acknowledges. That's the mind of Christ. Now, you can see that if somebody was to live in this way, the world wouldn't understand. Whether the unbelieving world would not understand that because this is so countercultural. This is how we live when we have the mind of Christ. So let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 2. So the question is, are, are, you, a, are you a natural person or... Could you be a spiritual person this morning? Do do these things describe your life? And then, the final question, am I a carnal Christian? Corinth was a city, a, a church that was deeply troubled. 
all kinds of problems going on. And what I would like to say is that all of the problems in the church at Corinth were because of unbelievers. The assault of unbelievers on believers, the persecution was causing all of the strife and conflict that was going on. And while I would like to say that, that would not be true. The reality is every single problem that was going on in Corinth was caused by believers. From what we can tell reading the book, they weren't suffering significant persecution. They hadn't lost their jobs. Second Corinthians, we, we find that they may have been kind of a wealthier church. They, their life was okay. Every problem that Corinth had revolved around believers. Believers who really acted like unbelievers is what it boils down to. Paul uses the word carnal a couple of times in this passage, and he uses two different words. And they have the same the same root, but they have different endings, so it alters the meaning a little bit. In one place, he uses a word that means that you're made up of, right? And, and the idea is that they were made up of flesh, so to speak, right? They were, they were living like they had never been born again. They were living like the natural man is kind of what he's saying. And the second word that he's using, it means to be characterized by. And so they were living like people who were never born again. And their whole lives were basically characterized by actions of those who had never known Jesus Christ as their Savior. They were spiritual people who were living like natural people. And the result was they were carnal Christians. They were letting the the worst part of themselves, their flesh, their sinful nature, dominate and control their lives. And so, what are the characteristics of a a carnal Christian? Well, there are two. One, carnal Christians are spiritually immature. Paul says in verse 1 that, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnals, as babes in Christ. And he's referring there to when he first arrived. When he first arrived, they weren't spiritual. They were unsaved. He preached the gospel. And so he had to speak to them once they were saved as newborns, which is right and proper. But in verse 2, I think he kind of lays the hammer down. He says, For I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're not able. See, the problems at Corinth, these weren't new believers that didn't know any better. The problems that they had weren't because they didn't know what they should do or shouldn't do. They weren't acting out of ignorance. They, they knew better, but they weren't acting better. They had been saved long enough to be spiritually mature. And as the author of Hebrews said, they'd been saved long enough to be teachers themselves. And yet they had not progressed to that point. And so they did what carnal, immature believers always do. They started trouble. And I think a, a truth that we should see from this is that spiritual growth isn't automatic. Just because someone has been a Christian for a long time, that doesn't mean that they're spiritually mature. Any more, really, than someone being a certain age means that they're emotionally mature. Have you ever worked with a 30-year-old that acted like they were 15 or 16? They they should have been mature, but they weren't. And where did all the problems really in that organization or in that group or in that relationship come from? 
from the 30-year-old that act like a 15-year-old usually, right? In a similar way, Christians who don't grow spiritually tend to become problems. And since spiritual growth isn't automatic and we don't want to become carnal Christians, we need to do what Peter said, but, but give all diligence to add to your faith. And I do like the wording, give all diligence. Because that means there's intentional effort that's involved. It requires a lot to grow spiritually. It won't just happen. We have to, to put forth the effort and we add to our faith. Like I come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the very beginning. That's not, I haven't arrived then. Now I begin to add to that faith. I begin to make intentional steps to grow spiritually, to be more and more like Jesus. And when I don't, then I become a problem. When I don't make intentional effort to grow, then I become carnal. And then I become trouble. If we were to look, when we look, go through Corinthians... What we're going to find is every problem in that church could have been solved if every Christian in that church had given all diligence to add to their faith. There were no problems that could not have been resolved through spiritually mature believers being spiritually mature believers. I'm pretty convinced that every problem in virtually every church in America revolves around spiritually immature believers. People who have been saved long enough to know better, but have not given all diligence to add to their faith, and they become a problem. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if you are not giving all diligence to add to your faith, you are in the process of becoming a carnal Christian. And at some point, you will be a point of strife and conflict within the church. Every church I have ever been a part of that had problems, they were never significant. They never split over who Jesus was or what Jesus did. They never split over the nature of Scripture or heaven or hell. They split over silly things. One church split over a piano, whether we should get a brown one or a red one. Churches have split over pews or theater seats. Hymnals or songs on the wall. Crazy things. These are what churches have split over. And in my experience, these are never new believers that are causing these troubles. New believers don't do that. They don't know what's, what should be right or what should be wrong. They're trying to learn. In my experience, every point of contention has revolved around a person who has been a Christian a very, very long time, but has not given all diligence to grow. One church I was a part of for like 12 years. And there were constant conflicts, constant issues. And they always revolved around one person. One person who had been a part of the church since the church began. Had been a Christian for 30 plus years. But he had not given all diligence to add to his faith. And so he did the next part. Carnal Christians are divisive. Paul says in verse 3 that for you are still carnal. 
For where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Carnal Christians are still spiritually immature. And a part of being immature, whether spiritually or emotionally, is thinking that you're the center of the universe. So you bring that into the church, and a carnal Christian is someone who believes that what they want should always be what everyone else does. Their preferences should be the standard for everyone. Their desire should be what everyone does. And, and so if, if everyone doesn't do what they want done, then they will do all that they can to undermine what is being done. They will cause strife. They will cause division. And generally, spiritually immature people are sort of unhappy. And so they seek out other unhappy people to congregate together. And they, they go over and over again about all that's made them unhappy. And they form a group that says the only way that we can be happy is if we get exactly what we want done. And if everybody does exactly what I want done, then I'll be happy. Right? And it's not a matter, though, of compromise. And let's find a middle ground. It's, it's exactly what I want. And so they begin to do all that they can to make sure that happens. The, the person I mentioned before, that's what he did over and over, over again. Sometimes in business meetings, he would be the one to speak up, but other times he would get somebody else to speak up for him. But it was always him behind the scenes. For years, he got his way, kept the church at a certain level and kept things going the way he wanted. But the, the time came when he stopped getting his way all the time. The church had grown. People weren't as concerned about his preferences as they were 20 years ago. And so, since he could not have his way, he took his toys and he left. He's no longer a part of any church, to the best of my knowledge. Carnal Christians are like little kids. They will get their way, no matter the cost... Or they will take their toys and they will go home. Carnal Christians always cause division. They always cause strife. And if you and I, if we are not giving all diligence to add to our faith one day at some point, we will be carnal Christians that cause strife among the church. Because any Christian can become a carnal Christian. All that it requires to become a carnal Christian is to stop putting forth effort to grow spiritually. Because we don't get to stay at the same level. We, we go, I mean, spiritual growth in general is going against the flow. And you can't stand still against the current. You tend to go with the current after a while. So the question you need to ask, are, am I a carnal Christian? Do I sense these things happening in my life. And if you are, what are you going to do about it? As we come to the end of the message, we all have to wrestle with who, who am I? Am I a natural person who rejects 
can't comprehend and, and thinks spiritual things are foolish? Am I a spiritual person who has the mind of Christ and tries to live the life of Christ? Or have I stopped moving forward and I'm gradually becoming a carnal Christian? You and I, we have to answer that question for ourselves. And then we have to ask, am I content to stay where I am? If you're a natural person, the only way that can be fixed is through faith in Jesus Christ. You must repent of your sins and you must believe in Jesus. You must make the intentional decision to turn from the life you're living and turn to Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross for your sins. He rose again on the third day. And if you call upon him, he will save you, fill you with your spirit, and you will become a spiritual person. If you're a spiritual person, stay the course. Don't. Don't get comfortable. Don't get complacent. Keep pressing on in the way that you're going. If you feel yourself slipping into carnality, repent of that. Recognize the problem with it. Repent and ask God to forgive you and to help you to move forward in your spiritual life so that you do not become a carnal Christian who's spiritually immature and divisive in the church. Who are you? And what are you going to do about it? Let's stand.